Ghostly Thistle presents The Antique Shop Episode 26 The Perfect Partner Soulmates It's a loaded word, isn't it? It's become like fairies or aliens. Do you believe in them? There's no proof either way, but I think the fact the concept exists at all shows a lot about humanity. A soulmate is a romantic notion, a comfort in a life full of frogs that eventually there'll be a prince. We like to think that out there in the world we billions of people that there's one person who'll fit us like a tailored suit. A perfect person that'll slot into your life like a beloved pet or bairn until you didn't remember what life was like before and refuse to believe there'll be a life after. But not everyone finds their soulmate. And after this story... You will not want to. They do exist, after all, but soulmates is not the right word. It's more like a fated person, and you can have multiple over one single lifetime. But let's not get ahead of myself. I hadn't given a thought to soulmates, no before this. It was a word that could mean something to some, yet nothing to others. I didn't really know if I believed it. It's too easy, too convenient. And when I started working in the shop and realising that life's much more a bitch than I thought, too dangerous. This day, it was just Reed and I in the shop. Finn had been sent on an errand by the madam the day before and wasn't back yet. Kronos and she were up the stairs. Reed forced me to play cards with him, to hone his skills so he could win more frequently against the wee shite. I was no much of a challenge though, but at least it gave him a confidence boost. The bell went and our eyes slid over, but mine snagged on the woman in the door, something tugging at the back of my mind, a recognition. I knew this woman's name. Reed returned to the cards, drawing his eyebrows together in contemplation a wet card to throw down next. But I was staring. An increasingly bad habit. I surveyed her as she walked forwards, a smile on her face that indicated we'd met before. I had a few seconds to conjure her name and hope she didn't conjure mine first. Her long grey hair was tied up in a bun, secured by a wooden hair stick carved into some kind of Celtic symbol. Somewhere in her fifties, she was smartly dressed in a tweed coat, leather gloves and handbag that perched on her arm. I scrutinised her widow's peak, her pink lipstick and the age spots that dotted her jawline, grasping at any memory that appeared. It was her voice as she said my name that eventually shook something loose. 
Fiona? Finola? Flora? Aye, that was right. Flora the Collector. She was one of the nutters that collected items like those in the shop and kept them. The last time I'd seen her, she looked dishevelled and pale after a tiny wee vase had trapped her in a nightmare. I immediately felt the dread build at the pit of my stomach as I forced my face into a welcoming smile. I greeted her by name, just to make sure I'd remembered it right. She introduced herself to Reed and told us that she had something that the madam would probably want. I recalled what she'd told me about collectors, about the way she went about it. They only keep certain items, benign ones for the most part. The ones that did serious damage were deposited in the shop's storage, until they made their way out because they felt like it. Just as I was about to invite her upstairs, the madam appeared through the doorway and told us all to follow her, including Reed. He shot her a look as though she'd caught him doing something unspeakable. I successfully stifled a laugh, which became harder when he threw me a pleading look. Even I wondered at the invitation. But just for the joy of seeing him sitting stiffly in the front room with the rest of us, I never said anything. He helped me with the tea, and no wanting to choose a sofa, he sat on the floor beside me in the coffee table. To be fair to him, there wasn't much choice. Kronos had the position beside the madam, as usual, and no one, no even the customers, wanted to sit in the other sofa. Whilst I poured the tea for everyone, Flora began to rummage round in her designer handbag and pulled out a small velvet jewellery box that contained something metallic, rattling round as she released it for her bag. Opening it carefully, as if afraid she'd damage the delicate hinges on the back, she placed it on the table facing us. It was a gold locket. Rather than the more popular oval, like most of the ones doing in the shop, this one was square, with the edges cut off so it was more like an uneven octagon. There was no fancy decoration on the front or the edges, but in the centre, in the middle of a star-like pattern, was one single red stone that could have been a real ruby or could have been glass. The delicate chain showed signs of wear and age, the gold a shade or two duller than the locket itself. There was no damage to either, no dents or nicks in the gold, or scratches at the opening where someone's tried to get in. Reed and I stared over the table, inspecting this thing, and if both of us have learned anything for our time in the shop, it's that pretty jewellery usually make for the nastiest items. I expected the madam to step in, to tell us all what it was and what it did to its victims. But it was Flora who began to speak, as though she were trying to sell us this locket. She took us back to the 50s, where cars were slow, skirts were big, and the telly was still in black and white. 
where an entire generation of young men were lost barely a decade before. A woman in her early 20s stumbles across a locket made of gold in the window of a pawn shop, a single ruby resting in the middle. She's on her way home for the shops where she's bought some fabric to make a new dress, special for her best pal's wedding. It's already the third of the year. Her younger cousin has just given birth to a bairn. Even her younger sister has started taking an interest in the latest bridal fashions, dropping hints to her boyfriend and parents. The people in this young woman's life are moving on, are growing and conforming to what society expects of them. And she wants to do it too, but she's being left behind. She sees couples walking down the street, holding hands, pushing prams, stealing kisses. And she wants that for herself. Thinking it'll make her feel better, she goes into the pawn shop and buys the locket. When she gets home, she eagerly retreats to her room and opens it up, wondering what pictures she can sacrifice to put inside. Except there's already one there behind the tiny pane of glass, stuck against the velvet backing. It's a man smiling at the camera, his hair smoothed back for his square jawline and sharp eyes. The young woman studies his face, and the more she looks, the deeper in love she gets, until a few weeks later she decides to find the man in the locket. Assuming it has something to do with the previous owner, she returns to the pawn shop. But they can't help her. It's been in the shop for too long and the paperwork has been lost. The young woman, in her growing desperation to meet the man in the locket, begins to post adverts in the newspaper, in the local shops, begging for anyone who recognises the locket or the man inside for his description to come forward. But no one ever does. Months and years and decades go by. The young woman eventually gets married and has bairns, joining the ranks a many a woman before and after. She's happy with her life, content with her husband and kids and suburban bliss. But somewhere she's buried deep, she still remembers the man in the locket. Every so often, when her mind wanders, she digs out the locket for the place she keeps it, away from her husband's gaze, and stares at it, as if doing so will bring him to life. Then, one day, when her bairns have left home, and her husband has had his midlife crisis and decided to marry someone else, she meets the man in the locket. She sees him across a room at someone else's birthday. She swears it's him, has studied his picture so many times that she wouldn't be mistaken. Her legs carry her forwards. They're introduced. They laugh and make small talk, but she knows in her bones that he's it. He's the one she's been searching for her entire life. The one that was made 
just for her. They court, then they date. Dinners, restaurants, films, walks on the beach, plans for a holiday, jokes about meeting each other's parents even though all are dead. She begins to think that she's never known real happiness until this, until him. She begins to think she's won at her life, hit the jackpot and taken away the millions. And then it's gone, like a shooting star. Their relationship a cherry blossom tree, here for spring and gone by summer. It was a drunk driver, they said. There was a chance he'd make it, they said. The funeral's next week, they said. She finds the locket a few months later, forgotten in the honeymoon period of any relationship. She can barely stand to look at it, and the hinges scrape open as she peers inside. It's empty. At some point in the last decade, it entered into a collector's possession and threw them onto Flora, who took some interest in the item. She began to trace it as far back as she could through physical descriptions and pictures and estate sales and auctions. She finds that it wasn't always a locket, not in the traditional sense. It can be traced as far back as the 18th century, Flora informs us, beginning life as a miniature, a small pocket-sized portrait that family members or betrothed couples used to carry round one another. The painting inside the gold frame changed depending on who was in possession of it. Shifting with the fashions of the time, it morphed for a miniature into an eye. A somewhat macabre fashion in the 18th century to carry around a small painting of the eye of your loved one. By the time early photographs were coming into circulation in the 19th century, the locket decided to modernise and become the locket we saw on the table that day. Simple, gold and unassuming. Flora said that every owner she could confirm, and there had been at least a dozen, all had similar stories. The locket would come into their possession somehow, and when they looked in it or on it, expecting a blank canvas, they'd find a portrait or an eye or a photograph of someone else. Assuming it was fate, even the dreaded soulmate, they'd try and find the person in the locket. Some died without managing it, but the ones who did, who thought they overcame all barriers, always lost in the end. Whenever they found their locket person, that person would always die soon afterwards. Flora had concluded for research that the person in the locket only died when the owner met them, as if their meeting insulted the powers that be so much they took action. Whatever you called the person in the locket, a soulmate, a victim, a stranger, it always turned out the same. I could have argued that they weren't really your soulmate if as soon as you met them they kicked the bucket but I kept silent. 
Flora had decided, after some deliberating, that it might be best kept in the shop rather than her collection. More to keep her own curiosity as to who the person inside would be for her at bay. Madame Norna nodded and thanked Flora for deciding to give it up. Then she turned to me and tasked me with putting it in the cabinet downstairs. It was my turn to look desperate. She knew what that thing did, what it could do, and yet was allowing it to be released back into the wild. But, like an obedient apprentice, I nodded and swiped the box for the table. She didn't say I had to leave it open in the cabinet. Flora stayed in the front room with my boss, whilst Reed and I retreated back down to the shop. And I could feel him hover at my shoulder like a bad smell. I never opened the box, and tucked it away in a dark corner of the cabinet, where I'd hidden the truth-invoking brooch Rowan had bought. A place where I hoped no one would see. Reed continued to stare at me, as though I'd done something surprising, or as though he was expecting me to say something profound. You're no curious, he checked. No really, I answered. What would he been the point? I didn't have the luxury of ignorance like its previous owners. I knew what would happen if I ever met the person I saw in the locket. And why would I want to spend the rest of my life terrified of meeting them? And if I did, by accident or on purpose, I didn't want to watch them die. Reed frowned, evidently disagreeing, and pointed out that even though they died in the end, you still got to experience that kind of love, that kind of perfect relationship some people dream about. Who didn't want to have that, even for a short time? I wouldn't have pegged him as a romantic, but people are fully surprises. I didn't give him an answer at the time because I didn't know what to say. Instead, I offered him the locket, which he recoiled at, claiming that I had a point about the dying bit. I've thought since about what he said about soulmates and fate. Whoever made the locket, however long ago, must have been a bitter sod. It's cruel what it does. Drawing people together, showing them a burst of happiness before stealing it away. Perhaps it wasn't the locket at all. Perhaps fate was bored. I've never been in love and I didn't know what it feels like. Honestly, I find it hard to understand. People slog through bad romance after bad romance, always going back for more in the hopes they find the one, their soulmate. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? Is that why some of the victims try to find the person in their locket? Hoping they can avoid the heartbreak and disappointment and just jump straight to the good stuff? Is that why fate intervened? Because it hadn't been earned. 
There has to be something about the sloggy bad dates and relationships, or why else would people do it? Dinner you need the bad so you can tell when it's good? Or are people just wired to hope that the next thing will be better than the last? That's as far as I want to think about soulmates or fated relationships or any of that. I'm just no that deep. All I hope is that the locket gathers dust for a long time to come. I immediately felt the <laughs> the dread. I, I'm also hearing the dread build in my stomach. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> oh dear. I expected the madam to step in, to tell us... <clears throat> Shifting with the fashions of the time, it morphed for a miniature into... You dick. The fuck was that? Oh my god. Should have had breakfast before I recorded this. I'm sorry if you can hear my stomach. Flora remained in the front room with my <laughs> Flora remained in the front room with my boss, whilst Reed and I retreated back down to the shop. Oh no, come on. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh God, I don't understand how many times I'm gonna have to do this sentence. Adi Amen. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of The Antique Shop. Episode 27 will be released in two weeks' time. If you'd like to support the show, please think about leaving a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to go above and beyond for the podcast, then think about visiting our coffee account by searching for Ghostly Thistle on coffee.com and donating however much you can. If you'd like to get in touch about this podcast or my other podcast, then you can message me on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Ghostly Thistle or email me at ghostly.thistle at gmail.com. If you are interested in some of the behind the scenes and inspirations for the episodes in this podcast, then do join the subreddit by searching for the Antique Shop Pod on Reddit and join in the discussion. I'm on fun fact number three now, and if you want to know what those fun facts are, you're going to have to join the Reddit. (laughs) So thank you for everybody who has already joined. It's very much appreciated. And hopefully as the podcast goes on and as I remember inspirations for the last 26 episodes, I can start adding a few more fun facts. And I will try and answer every comment and question that you can put on the subreddit as well. And I know I don't usually do that when it's on Facebook and Twitter, but I have promised myself that I am going to try with Reddit. <laughs> um, so yes, I will always be lurking at least once a day. Um, I'll be lurking in the in the subreddit. So yeah, do join in the discussion. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. <laughs>